Okay. Can people hear me? Is this turned on? No? Yes? Oh, there we go. Okay. Thank you. Welcome. All right. Hello, and welcome to what I think is the first panel here at PAX East. And uh, this is the Indie Board Games panel. Woo! Thank you, thank you, too kind. I am Thomas Elliott of Sixpence Games. I designed Professor Pugnacious and Cultists of Cthulhu, which you can see the unlaunched Kickstarter for over there. And we will be launching that Kickstarter in just a little bit here during the panel. And now, my lovely co-panelists. Right. I'm Paul Bender. I'm the Operations Director for Greater Than Games. We publish Sentinels of the Multiverse, and then also a Galactic Strike Force and Sentinel Tactics is now on Kickstarter. I'm Chris Batarlis from uh, Everything Epic Games. Uh, we did Secrets of the Lost Tomb, which was on uh, Kickstarter uh, between November and January of this past holiday season. So <laughs> while you guys were all enjoying the holiday, uh, we were kickstarting. Um, we just uh, finished up a little micro game called Raiders of the Lost Tomb, which uh, just finished up last week. Uh, and that's a fun little uh, micro game. So uh, yeah, we're, we're here to, to give you the lowdown, give you the, 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 the uh, insider look at crowdfunding. So uh, basically, I don't know if there's other info you guys want to, to give them or if... Uh... Yeah, so I, I also can answer questions. Like in general, I do all the kind of business operations, logistics, like all the boring stuff about making a tabletop game company is my job. And so anyone that has questions about that, like I've talked to a lot of people that they'll design games and like, I don't know the game, what do I do? You know, and so those kind of things, I do all that kind of stuff. I'd like to open with a bit of a straw poll. Who here has uh, designed a game of any sort? Yeah, okay. Um, who here has uh, tried to publish it, either like yourself or pitch it to a, a publishing company? All right, who hasn't done that but wants to? All right. There we go. You've come to the right place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, it looks like people have already made the games that they're thinking about, so we might not need to focus on the design process part of it as much. Um, but how about we open with that a little, little bit anyways? Sure. Uh, well, I'm president of uh, Everything Epic Games, which means that I run all of the business stuff, which means talking to all of the artists talking to everybody from manufacturers to people who play the game, play test in the game. I also am the main game designer, so I write the rules and play test and, and create every single little thing you could possibly imagine, including the universe of Secrets of the Lost Tomb. So that's a lot of stuff. So that, how do I do all that? Well, there's a lot of steps to it, uh, but basically uh, I want to know kind of what kind of things you are really wondering about, because I know that there's probably tons of questions out there that, because uh, we can go on and on about things that we really know and love, but I mean, if we could take a few questions maybe to kind of get us rolling yeah. um, before we launch this, this bad boy of Miskatonic. Uh, cultists uh, of Cthulhu at yeah. Miskatonic University. Oh yeah, so. Uh, yeah. Uh, can you give a little insight on any tips you have about writing rules? I mean, we've, we've Hire an editor. Very, very Hire a professional editor. Uh, I did not do that my first time around, and I greatly regret it. I am doing that with uh, Cultists of Cthulhu. Um, yes. Hire a professional editor. Get a good uh, graphic design person, preferably somebody uh, who has experience with rule books in particular, uh, to do layout. Um, and 
put pictures, pictures worth a thousand words every time. If you have to like list all of the things that are on a card in just plain text, that's not nearly as easy to understand as like, here's a picture with arrows pointing at the different parts of the card. Yeah, read rule books. Read rule books that you like and try to emulate the greats. Don't feel uh, ashamed of looking at really great rule books that you've seen or read on your own and try to emulate the, the way they do that. Try to not copyright infringe, but emulate what great rule books you know of. You know, think there's no reason why not to kind of study up and really kind of get how that prose sort of works. Because before you go to an editor, you need to have something ready. You know, you write my rule book for me, it's gonna cost you a lot more money. So if you don't have a huge budget to actually get a rule book writer for you, you know, using something as a template to kind of plug in all of the different aspects of what your game is about uh, really will, will help you out a lot. You know, think of, I, I was really able to read this, this rule book and understand the game and try to use that to help you you know, really get ahead for that. You should also do blind play tests, uh, particularly with people who have not played the kind of game that your game is before. Uh, so a blind play test is when you hand a prototype and you hand a rule book to some players and then you don't tell them anything and you don't answer any of their questions and the only resource they have is the rule book and like none of them have ever played it before and ideally, they haven't even played that kind of game before, and they just need to figure everything out based on the rulebook, because uh, you as the designer know your game way, like, it's, it's a disadvantage to you how well you know your game, because Bias. you're gonna be like, oh, all right, well, you know, this step three in this five-step process is super obvious. I don't even think of it when I'm going it, so I'm not even gonna write it down. And then everyone, you know, a third of your players get to step four and are like, where was step three? So, that happens. <laughs> Follow-up question, how do you find a good editor? That's a tougher question. <laughs> um, so the last time that I was at a con and talked about any of this kind of thing, um, literally seven people from the audience came over to me. Like I wasn't even like a speaker. I was in the audience and I asked a question about trying to find an editor and then seven people came up to me and handed me their business card. Um, and so, so I'm ask like, the question you just did. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. So if any of you in here are uh, prospective editors, this guy. <laughs> Give him your business card. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit about the importance of art in the game, and maybe also about uh, if you know any good resources or anything about partnering with the right artists. So. Yeah, so I think actually all three of us have had pretty different experiences with that, so I think we're each gonna have an interesting and distinct answer. Um, for me, I've worked with exactly two artists. Uh, the artist for Professor Pugnacious, a mutual friend introduced us, um, and I looked at her DeviantArt page and I was very impressed, and so we started talking and I hired her. Um, the artist for Cultists of Cthulhu uh, was actually at a demo for Professor Pugnacious, and afterwards he was like, came up to me and was all shy. He's like, I, I'm an artist, and if you if you ever need to hire another artist, here's my business card. And then he like ran away, all embarrassed. And I was like, ah, okay, whatever. Um, confidence is pretty important, so I actually like didn't really think about that guy very much for a long time afterwards. And then I was going through all the business cards I have, and I was like, oh, I, I never checked out this guy's website. And I looked at the website, and I'm like, oh, damn, <laughs> this guy's really good. Okay. So I contacted him and hired him. Um, I like to only work with one artist uh, per, per game because it helps to create a unified theme and feel to the game where every component 
um, drawn by the same person in the same style. It all looks consistent. Um, the, also, you only have to manage one person. Um, the disadvantage for that is that if anything goes wrong with, uh, like if the artist gets sick, or if the artist is a diva, or if, um, or just in general, it takes more time because it's only one artist doing everything, whereas if you get several artists, as Chris is about to tell you about, things go quicker, hopefully. Yeah, so real quick on art, okay? Secrets of the Lost Tomb has hundreds of pieces of un a unique and original artwork. Uh, starting off from placeholder art all the way up to the final products. We uh, basically, the way we found artists were, was literally from lots of research, from personal referrals, from other art uh, that was done out there. So for instance, all of our character artwork is done by a guy named George Pasturas, who is the artist from Avalon. If anybody's played Avalon the Resistance, he does all of the, the character art for that, for all of the, the, the hidden roles. Uh, so I basically, I asked some people, I was like, oh, who did your art for Agents of Smirsh? And they're like, oh, it was this guy. I was like, oh, I love that. So I contacted him and you know, it was within budgets. So we were able to hire that artist. But also uh, a great perk uh, when you're designing a game is to actually have an artist as a partner. When you have an artist as a partner, that's a humongous, humongous benefit because then you can get a lot of graphic design done and a lot of really great uh, artwork done. So for instance, Secrets of the Lost Tomb has 120 room tiles in it. Each one is unique. My partner does all of the room tiles. That's a lot of work. Like he works his butt off. And I have five artists on this project right now for characters, monsters, items, uh, graphic design, uh, the rooms, there's the box cover. There's just so many different aspects. Depending on the, the breadth of your game, or pretend, depending on how big it is, will really kind of determine that. But just as he said, DeviantArt is a wonderful, wonderful place to search for new up-and-coming artists, especially when you yourself are independent and you're trying to, to get started. So are these people. You know, just asking the question, sending out an email, not being afraid to tell them, look, uh, we don't have a humongous budget. We're not, you know, multimillionaire uh, uh, wizards of the coast. You know, we, we, we are, we're, we're the small guy, just like you. So let's work together and make this happen. And, and doing that and being, you know, emailing lots of people, you'd be surprised at the kind of responses you can get. Yeah, your best bet, in my experience, is for your uh, lead game designer to have been best friends since childhood with a guy who's a really good comic book artist, and then have him as your partner and have him be able to do 300 pieces of unique art. There you go. There you go. So if, you can, if you can do that, you're really, really in good shape. But the other, the other thing that I would say is being in the same location as the artist that you're working with uh -huh. is enormously advantageous. Um, that we have actually now we we all do this full time, so we've got an office and we're all walk, working out of the same office. And having the art, the artist, and the designer all in the same kind of room, in the same physical space, is great. Because then you don't have to go from a project management standpoint and like, hey, I'm gonna send you this email, how are things going? Like keep bothering someone in that very bothery, intrusive sense. You just kind of organically more see, oh, show me what you're working on, it's very cool. You get, you work back and forth. And then, and then the artist and designer, and everyone is really excited about things and showing every, everyone everything all the time throughout the workday, and that really, really helps. So if you can manage it, that's very nice. I wanted to add something to something Chris was saying. Um, somebody came up to me uh, a few months ago and was talking about, like, oh, I'd, I'd, you know, I'm not gonna have much of a budget to hire an artist. Is it okay if I tell them, like, uh, I mean, just do it for the publicity and like make a bunch of free art and I'll use it and you'll get your name out there and maybe then later somebody will hire you for No, that's not okay. Don't do that. Pay the people who work for you. If you're an artist and you're considering doing something for free, don't do that. 
sell but your stuff. You could do, a thing that you could theoretically do though that some people have done is give them a cut of the profits of it. So basically yes. bring them in sort of as a partner, yes. something like that. that I works. do that. But if you're gonna do that, um, and if you're gonna do anything like that, whether you're just contracting with the artist for a fixed sum, or if you're doing like, we're gonna give you an advance on something and then like 10% of the profits or whatever you're gonna do, however you work that out. Oh, and anything else you're doing in your business, have an attorney who's a real attorney, draw up all of your contracts and review all of your contracts and give you advice like that. Do not sign something or, get, or send something to someone else to sign until an attorney has reviewed it. That is my, one of my biggest pieces of advice I'll give. Uh, more or less diva than a graphic artist. Uh, any advice on getting the story? Story. I, I'm my own fluff writer. Yeah. As you can tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just accidentally the crunch before the fluff. So. Yeah. Um, finding someone to write for you. It has to be somebody that you kind of really sort of know. I feel like it. it you know, hiring a. Um, a full-time or professional writer to, to actually do the creative part is going to be very hard to find um, yeah. because it's usually that kind of a person is someone who just kind of do, does their own kind of thing. So if you could find somebody who's kind of a friend of yours or somebody you work on a game with who is, is more in writing inclined, you know, and then partner up, that's, I think, when you're going to probably find the best success with that. Yeah, I, um, I've also, I do the, uh, most of the writing for my stuff myself, and, but also on... Um, the artists that I hire are, are often like really get into the theme of it and are excited and are like, oh hey, I have this idea, can we do this? Um, so like, uh, for example, all of the um, cards that, uh, in Professor Pugnacious that have enough space on them to have flavor text, the flavor text is um, quotes from uh, famous people that are you know, appropriate to the subject of the card, uh, and that was the artist's idea, and I think it worked out really well. So uh, I have not hired anyone who's dedicated to just doing that. You can also get fluff from stuff that is um, not copywritten. So things that are very old, you know, things that are out of the, the, the more in the, in the, public, the domain. public domain. Like, yeah. like everything that H.P. Lovecraft wrote. Like that. <laughs> there you go. You know, stuff like that sometimes can really help you out. All right. so the theme so far seems to be you can't do it all yourself, hire people and pay them to do stuff for you. Um, one suggestion to add to this is get, hire or recruit a rules lawyer. Someone who will break your game and break it hard because our group of friends tends to be really understanding and the spirit of the rules. So, um, it is definitely a good idea to get somebody like that. Um, I haven't found it necessary to hire anybody to do that um, because there's if you uh, if you live in a decent sized city, then you probably uh, there is probably a game designers meetup group that you can join that will be incredibly useful. Um, if any of you guys live in New York City uh, and want to join the New York City playtest group, um, come talk to me after the panel. It is by far the best game design resource that I've encountered. It's just an amazing group of people. Um, but yeah, I, I uh, don't have the budget to hire somebody just to break the rules when there are so many people who are willing to do it for free. But you can, you can easily... You yeah, you can yes. easily start your yes. own meetup and, and literally yeah. create a playtest group and you'll get people. I mean, people want to come break your game. They think it's fun. Yeah. You know, it's like a playground for them. So, yeah. I mean, as long as they know it up front, come break my game, trust me, people will line up. They're ready. They're here. There's some questions back there. Hi. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the process of going from a basic concept to something that you could begin to play and playtest a little bit, just like a little bit of the steps? 
so for myself, um, the way that I start trying to think of uh, games is I think about themes that I really like, such as comic books or Pulp Fiction action adventure or uh, cosmic horror. And um, I keep that in mind. And then I also think, uh, if I say game space, raise your hand if anybody has any idea what I'm talking about. All right, I count like five. That's OK. So. Um, I have a maths degree, so I think about things a little bit more abstractly than some folks, but uh, I try to think of all the attributes of the games that I like, and I sort of try to look for the negative space in between them where it seems like there ought to be a really good game, but it doesn't exist yet. Um, and so a game that I haven't published yet, uh, it's called Save the Singularity. It's a cooperative, uh, push your luck, quick, like 15-minute filler game. Um, I thought about. I first thought of that one by going, okay, I really like cooperative games, and I really like quick, like party games, but I can't think of any that are, you know, the same. And so for a long time, I was pitching it as being the only uh, completely cooperative filler game. Uh, and then Hanabi came out, and that uh, sort of ruined that pitch. But um, uh, yeah, I look. I I look for. Combinations of mechanics that haven't been done before, but really seem like they ought to exist and be good. Like we, our, our second game, Galactic Strike Force, is was similar to that. It's a cooperative deck building game, it's sort of a deck building game. But that's kind of the, the design space idea that was some of the initial tool for that. Just, just to continue on that, creating an idea has to come from something that you kind of love in gaming. You don't want to make a game that you wouldn't love to play. I only try to make games that I really want to play, or uh, kind of using some things from other games, and trust me, there are, there's really no mechanic that has never been done. So when you go to make a game, don't be afraid if a mechanic is similar to another game, because it's gonna happen no matter what you do. Magic the Gathering uses cards, so does every other game, okay? So, so remember that when you go to make your game, and, and, and think about like what you really love in, in the games, because it's, it's going to help you know, you kind of create and then put the theme that you really love with it and you're going to be successful. Yeah, I, I recommend trying to combine the, the theme and the mechanics uh, as early as you can because you really want both of them to support each other. You want, the, uh, you want the mechanics to evoke the theme and you want the theme to provide a reason for each of the mechanics. Uh, and so you, you don't want there to be just things that happen with no explanation because they have to happen in order for the game to be balanced and you don't want things that are going on in the story you're trying to tell, but then don't actually occur in the mechanics at all. So. Um. Uh, going back <coughs> to H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and public domain work, um, I once spoken to the guys at Pellegrin Press who did the trailer of the Cthulhu game, and they told me they were paying royalties of some kind to the people who did Call of Cthulhu. I really didn't. That can happen when you actually want to license a specific mechanic from a company who's created a game. For instance, the D20 system. You know, when you want a license to create your own role-playing game, you have to license the D20 system so you can create that game. Maybe because the people who created Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game or the board game, yeah. you know, they had to license a mechanic that they really wanted to use, which honestly, some people shouldn't be too afraid of because licensing fees might not be that high, especially when, you know, the projected amount of, of things you're going to sell is not astronomical. So that's probably why that happened. Yeah. Oh, I mean, how much danger of legal recourse is there? There's a very simple. Uh, 
<laughs> what did you say? I missed that. I'm serious. Okay. I missed I said it. talk to an attorney. Okay. Yeah. All right. Legal Zoom. Yeah. Legal Zoom. Yeah. If you're not no. very rich, that's an easy way to do it. It's it's like a cheap fee, like thirty bucks a month, and you can literally talk to an attorney on on the phone for like half an hour, ask a ton of questions. I'm just plugging this just because when you're a small guy, it's easy. Legal Zoom. And there's a lot of pop, like people think that they know how the law works and they don't. <laughs> and so that's really a danger. We are not lawyers. Do not take right. anything that we say as legal advice. Would you also recommend Legal Zoom for reviewing contracts? LegalZoom will read, they'll read documents and they'll give you notes on them, but they won't write them for you, but you can pay more and you can hire the, the lawyers outside of there. So, you know, I don't work for LegalZoom, I don't get a cut or uh, any kind of commission. However, I, I recommend it, especially if you have specific questions. This way, when you go to a lawyer, if you do need to go to another lawyer, you save a lot of money because you don't spend tons of hours. You're ready. It's like, it's like going to an editor. You have your rule book as close to done as possible, so it takes a lot less to finish it. Rocket Lawyer's another site like that. There you go. Rocket Lawyer. Uh, can you tell us about uh, rakes not to step on during production or manufacturing? <clears throat> rakes not to step on. It's a evocative. There's place. a lot of them. There, there, are, there are lawn tools strewn about the uh, backyard of creating a game. Yeah. So there's a couple of ones with manufacturing that I can think of. The first one is you want to be sure that you get white samples. So if you're going working with yep. a manufacturer, especially particularly one overseas, uh, you want to be able to get actual physical white samples, which mean like just I want to get the box you're going to build me except without anything printed on it. Send me that so I can take a look and see exactly how it's going to go. You ideally then also would like to get a color sample so that you know how they're going to translate your digital files into color. We've had issues where like, the colors get skew one direction or the other, like either dark or light or green or red or something like that. You want to be able to balance that right. So yep. those are all things that are very important. And you want to also make sure that they are following, like the degree to which they follow the instructions that you give them, like this is exactly what I want and this kind of thing. And getting kind of like samples and feedback and interaction and pictures there, I think is very, very useful. Um, everything will take longer than you expect it to. There's just all sorts of delays that you don't predict. And e even if you do like predict a lot of the things and account for them, something that you don't expect will come up. Uh, so be prepared, take it in stride. Um, and if you are doing uh, a Kickstarter, which I highly recommend, um, if your estimate for when you're going to deliver is, uh, you know, overly optimistic, which it probably will be, just because like 90% of them are, um, tell everybody when you're delayed. Tell them why you're delayed. Tell them what's going on. Uh, just I, I posted an update um, every month after. So Professor Bugnacious was supposed to uh, go out to backers um, in April 2013. It actually went out in December. Every month after that, every month after April, I posted at least one update saying, here's what I did in the last month, here's why you don't have your game yet. And every time that I did that, like a half dozen people would comment on it saying, if you hadn't posted this update, I would be really mad at you. But you did, so I'm not. <laughs> so in the Starship Enterprise, Scotty multiplies his repair estimates by a factor of four, which is how right. he retains his reputation as a miracle worker. Yeah, that's a good way. Like Kickstarter uh, delivery dates. <laughs> But any more manufacturing rakes to step on uh, would kind of come up with basically uh, understanding to get multiple quotes so that you can actually compare because pricing is very important for somebody who's independent and starting up. When you don't own your own factory like Hasbro does in China, you, you have to pay someone else to do your games for you. So not just 
relying in just the first person that you find. Oh, you make a game, beautiful. You're charging $80 million per game, excellent. I can, I can do that somehow. You know, get multiple quotes so you can make a good comparison, make good business decisions. Think about how much can I sell my game for? Uh, is, is how much the, the game costing per piece and per quantity of how many I'm getting worth how much I can, I can sell the game for? Because people make board games because they wanna sell them. If they don't, you can go on Game Crafter and you can make your game and other people can buy it from there and you don't have to worry about manufacturing. So a very good rule of thumb for that, by the way, is when you're looking at manufacturing a game, if you're going to try to sell it in game stores, so not just selling it through a Kickstarter and then being done, but selling it in game stores, a good rule of thumb is that your manufacturing cost needs to be no higher than 20% of your MSRP, which sounds really, really crazy low. The reason why that is true is because of how the board game industry works. So if you're selling it on Kickstarter, that's cool. That's just going out to Kickstarter, right? But if you're selling it in, in uh, board game stores, there's a bunch of distributors who are wholesalers, basically, who buy from hundreds of different publishers and sell to thousands of different game stores. And they're going to expect when they're buying from you, they're going to buy in bulk, they'll buy a lot of stuff, but they're going to want 60% off of the MSRP plus free shipping to their location for buying it. And so in order to get any sort of margin to cover your shipping costs and your manufacturing costs and your warehousing costs and all the other overhead that you've got, then a good rule of thumb is that you want to have 20% of MSRP be your print cost. And then on top of that, uh, when you're looking at pricing a game, however, on the flip side of that, an MSRP of around $40, talking to a lot of game store owners, is a, is a people will buy that without having to think about it a lot. $40 is like, yeah, I'll buy that if it looks cool. I'll try to check it out. Once it gets up into the 50 or more dollar range, then suddenly I start budgeting, and then I think about bills, and all sorts of boring things like that, and making responsible decisions, and you don't want that if you're, <laughs> if you're trying to sell a game, you know what I mean? And so breaking up the game into smaller pieces and trying to figure out a way, like, ah, oh, we can do this, a really cool thing that sells for, you know, 30 to 50 bucks here, and then a really cool thing that sells for 30 to 50 bucks here is a lot better than this is a $90 game or a $70 game. Um, very in line with that. Can you talk a little bit about uh, your initial release budgeting process? You know, how much should you save for a war chest for problems, artists, you know, yeah. manufacturing costs? What was sort of the right? Absolutely. So you want to get a bunch of quotes, as you talked about, from manufacturers and figure out exactly what size print run and how much that's going to cost you for that print run. Then other things like artists and stuff like that, that's something you should negotiate way before. You should know that, like this is how much this artist is gonna charge, this is how much I'm gonna have to pay this other kind of design person or whatever. Yep. That, those are kind of things that are easiest to know. Uh, other things that get forgotten though are wherever you're manufacturing it, you're gonna have to pay to have it shipped to you, right? So the advantage, so you're usually, probably, if you're gonna get a good rate on high quality manufacturing, unfortunately you're gonna have to manufacture it overseas, either in China or in Europe. Um, and by considering that, the import costs are somewhat expensive. So, and the, and the, and you've got to amortize that over the cost of your game, obviously. Uh, the higher, in this case, the bigger the print run you do, the better off you are by a lot in terms of the price per unit, but then of course you've got a lot more expenditure for print run. So to give you a kind of example, when you're importing something from China, say you're shipping something from Shanghai to St. Louis, Missouri, uh, <laughs> things will typically ship, the standard freight shipment for ocean freight, which is the cheapest thing, is they put things in cargo containers, put them on a boat, put them across the ocean, take that container to put it on a train, and they can put it on a truck called intermodal shipping, it's pretty cool. So getting a standard size for that, a standard unit for intermodal shipping is a 40-foot cargo container. So it's basically like a 40-foot tractor trailer for a semi, also a box car. Moving one of those from, say, Shanghai to St. Louis when we do it is gonna be anywhere from six to $7,000, which includes the shipping, plus the customs, plus the taxes you pay for import, all that kind of stuff. If you chop it in half and get a 20-foot container, that's gonna be like, four to five thousand dollars. If you get just a couple of pallets, that's gonna be like three to four thousand dollars. 
So your cost savings are enormous when you get up to this full size of a full container. And what we've done with some smaller publishers, because filling a full 44 container takes a lot of games. Uh, what we've done with some smaller publishers, and I know some other people have been willing to do this, is you, you print your game for a Kickstarter, you print two or 3,000 copies or something, put it in a 44 container that you fill the rest of it with some, something that someone else is bringing over anyway, and they just pay for that fraction, and that can save you a lot of money. So looking in ways you can save money on that is very, very important. Sharing is caring. Yeah, yeah. I, I did exactly yeah. that, and it was totally worth the like week and a half delay for the other stuff to get put into the cargo container in order yeah. to save like $3,000. It is really, really key. The other thing is for shipping, like for Kickstarter, for parcel shipping, if you're shipping out a game that's gonna be in the vaguely five pound-ish range, and you're shipping in the United States to backers, it is going to cost you at least 10 or $11 a package, no matter what. Like, that is how much it costs, unless you're Amazon, right? And now, what I would recommend, though, is if you're gonna do any amount of parcel shipping, go to somewhere like FedEx or UPS and get a corporate account number, because that will track all of the shipping that you're doing. It'll get you an account rep who tries to get you discounts. And the amount that you'll wind up paying for shipping through those couriers is going to be way lower than the average person just showing up to a FedEx or showing up to a UPS store. Now, he just said Amazon. I don't know if you guys know, mm -hmm. but Amazon has a, has a part of their company called Amazon Fulfillment, which is not the same as regular Amazon. It's a, like another part of their company. And they actually can ship all your stuff for you. They can warehouse it. Mm -hmm. And they can even sell the stuff extra on Amazon. So they can actually literally, like, you can have them ship all your stuff for you, cost more money, but uh, yeah. they have a, the most efficient a, and best pricing on shipping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, Amazon. We, we've not done that because we do everything in-house, but I know some other companies that have done that and have good luck, so. Yeah, and there are also, uh, if you hire a consolidator or a distributor, um, like I have a contract with PSI, which is a consolidator, they sell to distributors, distributors sell to retailers. Uh, they also do um, the fulfillment for Kickstarters right. and things like that. But they take a cut of the profits. Yeah. Woo! Uh, so, the first before, you're looking at a game in Boston. Those guys meet up Facebook, all that. But you just said something really interesting that I did not know about. How do you find people who are shipping things overseas that you can jump on the freight? Uh, so the way I found it was that I was discussing with the manufacturer about um, shipping things from uh, China to America. I used Panda Games Manufacturing, um, and they, uh, I asked them. Basically, I just asked them, hey, is there anybody else who's getting a, uh, a run done at the same time that we could combine with? And they're like, yeah, Plat Hat Games uh, is making a game. It'll, it should be done like a week after yours. Uh, we'll put the two of you in contact to see if it's okay to do that. And we were both like, okay, to split our container and therefore both of us pay less money? Yes, that is totally fine. Yeah, truck um, and manufacturer is a really good idea in general, no matter who you manufacture with. We've done that. We're willing to do that with anyone that... Man that Manufacturers around the same time as we do, and since we do a lot of volume of Sentinels, we're bringing that over all the time, and so we're very willing to do that in general. If anyone's interested, you can contact me. Cool. Yeah. Get more quotes, though. Don't just talk to Panda. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying anything yeah. bad about Panda, but get more quotes. Panda's awesome, but more expensive than a lot of other manufacturers. Right. Just, you know. Get more quotes. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good one. There's, there's, there tends to be a sort of a, a, some, there's some trade-offs that I found. Person, this is my personal experience. So you get some manufacturers that, have, and Panda is one of these, and there's some in Europe that are really good at this too, where they are incredibly helpful. Like they will walk you through like your, what your options are, and they will, they will really hold your hand through it if you're a new designer, which can be super, super helpful. 
then they wind up being a lot more expensive. Uh, there are other manufacturers that you can that are really high quality, cost-effective stuff. But when you say I kind of want to do a game, they're like, "All right, we can do anything you want." So tell us. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lot less handholding. So you've got to like figure it out and like, oh, I, I want okay, I'm just going to do a lot of research on my own and figure out it out. But then you can save a lot of money. What I would recommend is contact a bunch of publishers and say, "Hey, who manufactures your game?" You know, you see someone on Kickstarter who's done a good game, or you pick up a game and like, this is very nice. Figure out, ask them who manufactures it, and they'll generally speaking tell you. Fantasy Flight Games and Wizards of the Coast will not tell you. Right. <laughs> I asked. I asked. Ask, ask guys like us who've had to do tons of research yeah. because we ask those big guys, they won't tell us. Right. Yeah. because you need to pay someone to sculpt them, and then once you get them to the factory, you need to pay the factory to do the tooling on the actual mold, and depending on how complex your mold is, that's gonna be, that's gonna be quite, quite expensive. So like, a mold might cost anywhere from $1,500 to $2,000, or $3,000 even, uh, depending on how complicated it is, and depending on how many little bits there are that go into the actual model. So that's something that you really wanna talk to your manufacturer about, but that, that upfront expense is expensive, but then once you start doing the injection molding, you see enormous uh, economies of scale on that. So one thing that we've found out though that saves, can save money for, for the right kind of stuff on, on the sculpting and stuff like that is there's some factories that actually have, like, like overseas that actually have in-house sculptors and stuff that work directly with the factory and they know how to sculpt things so they don't have weird, hard to mold stuff. And so that is, a, that is an option for there. Figuring out the budgeting for stuff like that is, is once again, I always push you back to getting quotes. Yeah. yeah. Get quotes from multiple people because you're gonna have one company that's gonna say $20,000 for the molds, telling you for real. And one company's gonna say four for the same. Yeah. So you really have to compare and say, what's the quality? Are, are these people even comprehending what I'm asking them for? <laughs> because sometimes there's a language barrier. If you get the quotes and you compare it to the approximate MSRP, you know how much money you're gonna have or you're going to need to be able to have the war chest that you need so you can get through a Kickstarter or get through your manufacturing phase. You can pay your artists, pay all these people, pay all your expenses, and maybe have a few bucks extra so that you can continue your company and, and, and potentially have enough money to get you to selling your games so that you can make more games. When you're budgeting, this is something else I find very important. Not only should you budget for the manufacturing and shipping and all that stuff, but also for marketing. And the absolute best marketing you can do for a board game is to go to shows like this, in particular, Gen Con, actually. Gen Con, if you're gonna go to just one show with a tabletop game, go to Gen Con in Indianapolis in the middle of August. No, PAX um, is the, the two, best. The two <laughs> The two packs are awesome, and we will always go to packs, and we will always go to Gen Con because they're really good. But if you, and so I would recommend going to all of them. Like that's actually what's correct. But if you can, if you can only go to one because you don't have the time off a of vacation or the money, and you can only go to one Gen Con, is only you should go to. That sounds like a great intro for uh, Cultists of Cthulhu, Miskatonic <laughs> University Kickstarter, which is launching right now.
He just read all of that agreement yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> that was fast. Speed reading. Oh, I read that, right? <laughs> Forward to legal zoom. The actual... Yeah. yeah. So, on the subject of Kickstarters, how about we start talking about those a bit? Um, so, Kickstarters, uh, getting a bunch of momentum early, quickly, is uh, definitely a very important thing. So, Cultists of Cthulhu is a big box thematic game, it takes place at Miskatonic University. Uh, mini awesome miniatures are a stretch goal, and what is this? Okay. <laughs> Go scroll down, show you the awesome art. There's a room tile you can check out. Uh, this is a cooperative game, uh, except that oh, you guys are playing academics, uh, investigating weird stuff going on at Miskatonic University, except one of you is secretly a cultist who is trying to kill everybody else. It's one of you. One of you. Only one person in this room. <laughs> um, and. There's a sculpt for a miniature. Um, so yeah, if that is the sort of game that sounds uh, interesting to you, then please, by all means, go ahead and back it right now. There are some early bird specials that are going to probably disappear pretty quickly and will let you get the game cheaper than other folks. Uh, and even if you are not interested in backing it yourself, if you could spread the word on uh, Twitter or on Facebook and what have you, that would be very helpful. Um, and I want to say, uh, in terms of your running your own Kickstarters, um, social media is incredibly important. Um, and like for, for my first Kickstarter, uh, nearly a third of the backers found the link um, just from my personal Facebook page, uh, which is, was really surprising to me. But yeah, my backers were basically split, split a third of them from uh, Facebook and Twitter, a third of them found it on Kickstarter, and then everything else put together was the other third. So it's interesting there, Kickstarter is not a replacement for marketing for a game. What it is is a marketing amplifier. So it'll take the existing social network that you have and, and amplify that. So if your existing social network is small, you'll get a relatively small reach with your Kickstarter. If it's relatively large, you get a much, much larger reach. And so you see this even like some of the, the projects that are the most popular on Kickstarter are often run by really like established kind of branded people that know like these guys do a really good job, a lot of people following them and stuff like that. Or Tabletop, uh, Dwarven Forge, which makes awesome, awesome, sweet miniatures for D&D, like terrain and stuff. Anyway, they just finished a Kickstarter and got like $2 million because they do an awesome job. They've been around for about 20 years and people really know about them. So going to conventions though, like PAX and Gen Con gets you in contact with more people so that if you run a Kickstarter later, they know about you, they've seen your stuff, and they're more likely to back it. So it helps to amplify that. Yeah. This all might sound a little intimidating. I know I certainly felt overwhelmed when I was first learning about all this stuff. But uh, there's definitely some good news, which is that there has never been a better time to uh, do a crowdfunding campaign or be an independent board game designer except, you know, tomorrow. Because uh, Kickstarter alone has been um, the board games, uh, all of Kickstarter, but especially the board game section, has been growing literally exponentially every year since it's founded, and it's not just not slowing down, it's accelerating. And so the number of like greater than $100,000 uh, Kickstarter campaigns is twice what it was last year, the number of more million dollar campaigns, twice what it was last year, the number of successful campaigns, twice what it was. Uh, 
And if you go through and look at the unsuccessful campaigns, there's a lot of them where, like there's a fair number of them where, yeah, it's like they almost made it, but they didn't quite, or like they had a really good idea, but their uh, goal was too high. But there's also just a lot of ones where it's pretty clear that what happened was somebody was like, I've heard that people are getting free money on this Kickstarter. I'm gonna just draw a square on a paper and call it a game and sell that. Uh, and, and it's you know, really clear why they didn't succeed. Um, so don't be intimidated by this. You have to do your homework and you have to do all of your research and plan ahead. But if you do that, your odds are actually pretty good. A few boring words of caution about Kickstarter. The first one is talk to an attorney before you do Kickstarter and also talk to an accountant. Uh, you actually, before you run a Kickstarter, you really should be set up as an actual company, like an LLC or something like that, and also talk to an accountant about the tax implications of suddenly getting a bunch of money at once because there's people that have really run into trouble with that. Uh, the second thing is that there are some people on Kickstarter, just how the Kickstarter community is, that can be very, very like um, complaining and demanding of wanting free stuff a lot, a lot, a lot. And I've seen some campaigns kind of give in to that to the point where they wind up losing money on the Kickstarter campaign because they're trying to make everyone happy on the entire Kickstarter campaign and they yeah. give away too much and they aren't covering their actual costs. And so either the, the project just falls apart and gets delayed and they can't do it or they wind up digging into their own pockets to put their own money forward just to fulfill their pledge. So those are things to be cautious of when you are budgeting out for your Kickstarter. So kind of related to that, like, how do you determine the number of stretch goals? Like, do you guys have backup stretch goals in case that is really tricky. Yeah, that's... Like, you know, like, um, is, is there any kind of template? Like, well, previous data has shown, like, X people will only do the five... So, it, it used to be the case that um, everybody would have tons of stretch goals all over their Kickstarters, but it seems like people are moving away from that now. And one thing that I've seen um, a lot of successful campaigns use, uh, especially Secrets of the Lost Tomb, um, is goals that aren't related to raising money, um, but are related to, like, if we get, uh, th that aren't related to, like, if we get this many dollars over the goal, but are like, if we get this many dollars by the end of the weekend, or if we get this many uh, Facebook likes by, the, you know, the end of the day, or, or whatever. Social then... capital incentive. Yeah. Okay? So asking your backers and your friends and your family to help you create something new to help you make no something out of literally nothing that wasn't there before. So reaching out and saying, hey, if you guys can help us out spread the word, we want to help you because it's going to make the entire project even more successful. You know, helping spread the word on a, on a site like Board Game Geek, for instance, getting on the hotness list is extremely important because it helps drive more traffic to you. You can spend thousands of dollars on advertising. You can spend thousands of dollars on banner ads. But the best advertisement you're going to get is a referral from somebody that you inspired to want to help you. So they tell their friends, they tweet about you, they go on their Facebook, they go on Board Game Geek, and they spread the word. It's, it's extremely, extremely important. Stretch goals can be very dangerous. When, when maybe at the end, we'll, I'll show you Secrets of the Lost Room real quick, and I'll scroll for about a half an hour, and you'll see about how long the Kickstarter got, because we're still working on this, on this, on these amazing stretch goals that we, we created. More content that, if you're not careful, couldn't be unfinished content, which you have to finish now after the Kickstarter. So you have to be very conscious of how much content you want to create because all of this content that you want to give away, if it's not pre-planned, which usually for a lot of Kickstarters, it's not because 
you're not sure, uh, you know, I'm just hoping to get my goal, or, uh, oh, maybe I'll get $20 million, and I'm going to put on as much stuff as I possibly can to, to inspire people to give more money. But remember, the more you give, the more the package weighs to ship it, the more it costs to manufacture, and you have to consider that if you're manufacturing something, that you try to make the same quantity of, uh, of the base game as all of the expansions and all of the promotional products and the Kickstarter exclusives and all of these different things that the Kickstarter people want. I want exclusives too. So I think about myself and I say, oh man, it'd be really cool if I could do this, this, and that. But you have to consider all of that stuff costs money and time. And the more time it costs, the more money it could potentially cost because a lot of backers may get a little upset they might say, oh, how, why is it taking so long? So communicating with the backers and yep. really expressing that these stretch goals are, are what we're going to do and, and not pushing yourself into doing stretch goals that you did not plan for, yeah. just as he said, yeah. is a really important point. Yeah. So we, 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 we still are learning this. this is, we're running our fifth Kickstarter right now for Sentinel Tactics, our new game. And we had, like, well, we can know, <laughs> we, we planned out a bunch of stuff in advance, being like, if we get this much extra money, then we can do this thing. And, and we planned it out all the way, the, the goal is 50,000, and we planned it up all the way to 200,000. Well, now we're at 211, and so we kind of ran out of things. And so, like, well, Looking at it, we calculated out where well, we could do another thing, but instead of delaying the main game, well, it would be a separate shipment later of another thing to give us time to get that done without delaying the main thing on there, and then you can add that on separately. So it's something that we're still playing around with in terms of getting value to backers for stuff without making them feel like things suck for them. So that interaction with backers, figuring out how you can get that 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 balance best is really tricky. Do your best to pre-plan those though. It's really important and even if you don't show them all at one time, have them pre-planned and get quotes on, yes. on what you want to buy yeah, for those stretch goals. Sort of stretch goal up there Budget. Have it at a particular price, get a quote for it. Budget. Yeah. It depends on the manufacturer. Um, Thousand or fifteen hundred, approximately, is usually the smallest possible run for a board game. What, what do you mean? That's a, that's a good question. So why do you want to print the game, I guess? Money or how many games you can manufacture? Yes. You're talking about money or, or how many games you're manufacturing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously, it's going to be, right? I mean, you can't order two board games. Right. So you can. You can. On GameCrafter.com. Right. Yeah. You so can put your game on there. People can buy it and they print it to I, order. I, I, I yeah. You can do that. what you're getting at. So you, you can print, in principle, you could do one, to two, one or 2,000 copies of a game. Um, your manufacturing cost is going to be way high and it's going to be tricky in that case if you print that many. You can, you can do it, but it's gonna be real hard to get down to that ratio where your manufacturing costs the fifth of the MSRP and keep that MSRP at a reasonable price. Um, we'll never print a game that we can't print at least 5,000 of. That's higher than a lot of people that do stuff on Kickstarter, but yeah. if you are gonna sell it through, if you're like, I'm dedicated to doing this, I wanna make this my full-time job, I wanna sell it to distributors as well, I wanna get it in every gaming store, then that is a reasonable bump to make, but that's a little bit of a scary number, so. Yeah. Most yeah. of the manufacturers will have their minimum print runs. A lot of the ones in China are, like you said, 1,500, maybe 1,000. Yeah. Um, German ones are usually 5,000 as their minimum. Mm -hmm. Ludofact will do. Ludofact is one of the best game manufacturers yeah. in the world. They will do a print run of 1,000. Yeah. However, remember this. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be very high quality, but it's going to be expensive. They print, I think, 20,000 games a day. They, that's how fast they can print in their factory. So 1,000 games to them is like an hour and a half, two hours. 
two hours. You know what I mean? So, you know, keep that in mind, but, yeah. you know, understand the quotes. Yeah. The other thing to look at when you're getting quotes from those manufacturers is depending on the kind of game, you, it's important to kind of like learn, look at different games and what kind of components and materials they use and learn what you need to spend a lot of money on and what you don't and what substitutes that might be cheaper are. So some of the like German manufacturers and Ludofact and stuff like that and some, some fancy manufacturers will have triple layer cardstock that's really cool, it's like black core cardstock. And it shuffles really nice and it's like for casino cards that you can't cheat with and it's really cool. Well, if you're not playing a game where you need to shuffle it constantly and where you I care about people being able to look through the cards. You can just go with a single layer paperboard, which is way, way cheaper. And in fact, we've found, so for Sentinels and Multiverse, it's enormously card intensive. Um, and we found actually a paperboard that they use in casinos in Macau that is super robust and stands up to thousands of shufflings, but it's a lot cheaper than getting like a triple layer card stock. And so there's certain areas like that too, when you're looking at especially a smaller print run, and you want to try to get it in a price point that you can afford it on, like, no, looking at those different kind of options and getting parallel quotes with different materials is also really good. And if you're not trying to make this your full-time job, if you really just have like are passionate about a game and you want it to exist and you want some people to be playing it, don't dismiss print-on-demand out of hand. Yeah, uh, like the Game Crafter makes really uh, complex things with like a bunch of different components, but especially if your game is just cards. Um, drive through Cards is a really good website that um, does print-on-demand cards for like, it's $2.50 shipping and then $0.08 per card, which is pretty cheap. And another one real quick, just to interject with just cards, if you want to make a card game, uh, the company that makes Bicycle oh, Cards, yeah. the American Playing Card Company. A uh, U.S. Now, playing Card Company. Uh, yeah. U.S. Playing Card Company, yeah. They make cards in 56-card decks, but they'll print anything you want on them. Yeah. Okay. So understand they're coming to come in 56 card decks, but you can make something in the United States. It's yeah. not easy to make a regular board game in the United States, but you can do some cards. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, getting a Kickstarter going, one approach I'd seen was early bird specials. Is that something you could speak to at all? I did not do that my first time around. I am doing that right now. And at the moment, only the people in this room know that the Kickstarter for Cultists of Cthulhu is live. So, if you want Why that, you check it. Check yeah, it. check it. Scroll up. My personal opinion is that I don't like them because they. <laughs> it begins. Yeah. Cool. So, because. Thank you. <laughs> you'll wind up with backers, especially if you've got people that are like, they're kind of loyal fans of yours, if they wind up in a situation where like they're at work or they're at a doctor appointment or something, and then they miss out on something that they couldn't get otherwise, that kind of sucks. I don't know, the, the way that I've seen it done most effectively when it's been done, just from scrolling through tons of Kickstarters, is I've seen people, seen campaigns where they had limited stretch goals for the same thing, like you get this stuff, but it's a limited, but there's, there's four different limited goals for the exact same stuff, but they're increasing prices. Yeah. And so then you go through and do that. I've not done it. Some people won't like it. Yeah. Some people won't like anything. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's okay. kind of the thing. You've got to decide you what you're going to do that makes people mad. So like on our Kickstarter, the thing we do that some people have table flips about is that we we you, we sell the game for MSRP plus shipping, <coughs> and that's how much it is. And then we give you a bunch of other free cool stuff for getting it on the Kickstarter. But they're like, well, I could just buy it for Amazon for cheaper later. We're like, well, we're going to sell it for this price, and we're going to tell you how much shipping it costs, and then we'll give you free stuff on top of that instead of just discounting the game to start with and then not giving you as much free stuff. Go, go to Secrets of Lost Year real quick. I'll show them. Yeah. I, I did a lot of early birds, different kinds of early birds, different structures for di tons of different goals. I'm a little crazy, as you can tell. So I'm going to show you real quick. If you scro just scroll down and show them the goals and, and go from the bottom up, you'll see. So the bottom up? Yeah, right there. So right there is, if you go to 225, right, one more. 
the 225 is the the basically that was the really low priced early bird for our completionist package so you could get all of the stretch goals and tons of miniatures and all kinds of expansion packs all in one for basically 25 dollars off which is a pretty big early bird and then once that actually sold out and i guess for some reason uh, a couple people changed their mind at the end which don't be disappointed. It's going to happen. Oh, yeah. I, but, I have uh, a horror story to share about that in a second. <laughs> this first. But yeah, so basically, as you can see, I went from 225, 235, 245. So I kept giving people new opportunities. As it filled up, I would give people new opportunities to have another early bird because we're a new company. You know, we're, we're, we're an independent company. We need to give you something so that you want to kind of understand that we're, we're trying to help you know, you guys get our products and get our games and enjoy our stuff. You know, you don't know us, you know, so we want to try to like, we're like, all right, well, we know what our MSRP is. You know, we're not looking to become millionaires on this Kickstarter. We're trying to make an awesome game and put it in your hands so you can play. So, you know, we have to take that into consideration too. Again, we're not Fantasy Flight Games. We're not Wizards of the Coast. So, you know, we can't make a humongous quantity. So we, we need to try to find ways to, to get it in your hands. So Early Bird sometimes can help you really quickly drive through your original funding goal, which is tremendous. When you're funded, that makes everybody understand this game's going to happen. I'm going to jump on board too. I'm going to jump on board too. You should jump on board. It's funded. Don't miss out on the Early Bird. It helps to inspire people to, to get in there so that you can really kind of show a trend of your Kickstarter growing which is what people start to feel confident about. It's fun. It's like a little roller coaster ride. And people really enjoy that. It gives you an adrenaline rush. Yeah. It's just, cool. So just in case anybody doesn't know, the way that Kickstarter works is you've got your goal, um, you've got a certain amount of time to reach it, and if enough people pledge that you meet, meet the goal, then everybody's cards get charged, you get the money, and you do your thing. If you don't reach the goal in time, then nobody gets charged, nobody loses anything, and you just don't make it. Um, so this means that... If you actually legitimately want the thing, there is no reason not to back it. However, people still, for some reason, won't back things if they don't think that it's going to succeed. Um, at least a lot of people won't. And so meeting the goal uh, early is very important. Um, also about the uh, cancellations, there will be some people who cancel their pledges. Uh, with Professor Pugnacious and also with um, Cultists of Cthulhu, uh, one of the pledges is for $500, uh, you will be illustrated on one of the cards. Like with Cultists, it's one of the characters that people can play as will be a drawing of you. Um, and the same thing with uh, Professor Pugnacious. On the second day of the Professor Pugnacious campaign, some guy in Brazil was like, yeah, I'm going to back that. And I'm like, that's awesome. Uh, sold one of the big rewards uh, really early in the campaign. Uh, I got in contact with the person, I uh, had them send a photo to the artist, the artist um, drew the picture of them, we posted it in one of the updates, and we're like, hey, check out how cool this is. Uh, like, look at this awesome, like, here's the photo of the guy, here's the drawing of the guy, it looks great. Um, and hopefully that inspired some more people to pledge, but uh, then two days before the campaign ended, the guy um, rescinded his pledge and deleted his Kickstarter account. So the $500 all of a sudden went away, and uh, we had to edit that card so that his face wasn't on it anymore, because I'll be damned if he's getting in my game. <laughs> um, we are almost done here, so I think we have time for just a few questions, questions Good. left Good. that are really quick. Uh, so, my question, Andy, if Colin needs a little explanation of why I'm asking this, but what is an appropriate time to actually launch a Kickstarter campaign? And what I mean by that is... Tuesday morning. You, you, were, you, have, you, know, you have your artwork done, and you have prototypes Yes. And needs funding to get to that point. 
Um, sort of. Since Kickstarter has gone pretty mainstream, a lot of artists are, and indeed the sculptor that I'm working with and the artist that I'm working with, are uh, the art is not done. All the art that you see on the campaign, and then there's uh, links to a few more uh, bits, that's all of the art that has been done, uh, which is a small fraction of the whole thing. They are working, um, uh, we, we've got a contract uh, written up and signed, I will pay them conditional upon the Kickstarter succeeding. If the Kickstarter fails, they don't make any more art, they don't get any money. If the Kickstarter succeeds, they get paid for all of this and they get guaranteed a lot of work and they get a bonus because they are willing to work conditional on the Kickstarter succeeding. But when to start a Kickstarter is a really good question because no. we did ours during the, from, from, from Black Friday all the way through January 7th which was a very interesting, let's just put it that way, time to have a Kickstarter. And it was also a long Kickstarter. It was like 43 days, which is pretty epic for everything Epic Games, okay? So I would not recommend doing that again, okay? We wouldn't probably ever run our Kickstarter during the holiday season. Everybody's buying Christmas presents. They're buying Hanukkah gifts. They're out on vacation. They're, they're busy. That's not what I meant. What, what, I'm, what I'm referring to is, and that's, that's still good. Right. The rules should be either done or very close to done. You should be able to link to a, um, a PDF, or in my case, a Google Doc of the uh, as done of as the you rules. Can afford. Yeah. Um, yeah. Your, I mean, your game should be a playable game that has been play tested a lot, and people think is awesome. And other, I mean, it, sh it should be an actual game already. You want to take a lot out of the imagination of the backer. Yeah. So you want to really show them what it can be, the best that you can with the fund you have. You know, other people sometimes may do an Indiegogo to get funding to do a Kickstarter. <laughs> Have you ever heard of that one? People do it. People do it. I'm just giving you some ideas. There's a lot of things if you need it, you know, because Indiegogo, they have flexible funding. Kickstarter does not. If you, you put $10,000 you need, if you don't get $10,000, you don't get anything. Indiegogo, you do flexible funding. It's higher percentage fee. However, you can get $5 and you'll get it. You know, so for instance, you know, that's just another way you could potentially get yourself to a point where you can afford to at least do some sort of a Kickstarter. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Was Tuesday a real answer? Yes, actually. Tuesday, like, Tuesday morning. morning is actually a really good time because everyone's at work not paying attention to their job and they just finished everything. <laughs> I, I mean, it's really, really crazy internet usage things. Like, yep. people get in on Monday, they're like, oh, I've got to catch up from the stuff I didn't do over the weekend. Now it's Tuesday morning, I get in Slack off and read the internet all day. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, they read the internet all day. Friday, they try to catch up things with, yep. over the weekend and then they don't pay attention to yep. the weekend. That's the what I do. <laughs> the, only, the only reason why I'm launching this uh, right uh, on Friday is because I wanted to launch it right now during this panel. Yeah. So. But it, it is a real answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, how often do the quotes differ from the actual cost of producing the game? And how much quotes do you get? They typically don't. No. Like, if yeah. they tell you something's going to be a price, that's how much it is. Yeah. Like, unless you change components on them or something like that. Yeah, you can get that in contract that's... Yeah, yeah they're not going to change it. Right, um, yeah, we're actually... Yeah, we're we are out of time. If anyone so. wants to come ask me questions like personally yeah. and I should be Yeah, absolutely. Come on and talk to the rest. Thank you. Thank you.